Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Today, we're dedicating our entire show to children's authors, including one of my all-time favorites, Cynthia Ryland, whose first book was all about her experiences growing up in West Virginia. Something told me to pick up a pen, you know, pad of paper, and within a few minutes, I'd written my first picture book when I was young in the mountains. She went on to write over a hundred books. We also talk with writers about what children's books can teach all of us. A child can be reading it on one level and the adult reading it on another, and both derive a tremendous benefit. We all need that these days, getting acquainted with one another. So definitely storytelling is at the foundation of a better world. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Today we're talking with children's book authors. During the pandemic, many parents, including me, became part-time teachers, and books claimed an even more important role in many of our lives, like with producer Roxy Todd, who spent much of the time working from home with her toddler-aged daughter. One of their favorite books is Messy Larry. Here's Roxy, reading the opening of the book to her daughter. Uh, Messy Larry. Uh, uh. Well, Larry, you know, was really quite sweet. He'd heard them say once or twice or a hundred times, Larry, try to be neat. If you can't, then stay in your seat. He really wants to paint, doesn't he? Uh. Yeah. Oh, he'd been called big. He'd been called big and fat, but nothing hurt Larry quite so much as that. Is he sad? Eh? If you've spent any time with toddlers, you know that messes are part of creativity and, well, life. Which may be one reason this book resonates so much with Roxy's family. Roxy caught up with David J. Perry, who wrote and illustrated Messy Larry. Perry is a Pittsburgh native who lives in West Virginia's northern panhandle, So let's start off. I would love you to describe Messy Larry and what does he look like and who is he? Messy Larry is a a bear type creature, I I guess is what you would call him. Uh, He kind of looks a little bit like a bear. Uh, Some kids say he looks a little bit like a wolf. The thing that really makes him different is not the way he looks, but his messiness. And and the thing that matters most to him in the whole world is is art and the chance to express himself through painting. He loves this more than anything in the world, but his messiness gets in the way and it causes problems for him. And he has to seek out some guidance from a, a kindly relative. And one thing you... You mentioned, of course, he's his name's Messy Larry. He's really kind of like a larger than life kind of clumsy character. He he's not exactly like intentionally messy. He just kind of accidentally seems to bump people's paint over and water over and or in one page he's he sneezes. That's my daughter's page where she goes, "Oh no," cuz he sneezes and all the pages scatter. Yes, you're absolutely right. He he just can't help himself. This is uh, not something that he does on purpose. It's just who he is. And uh, he he's really kind of at a loss to know how to solve that problem. 
you're you're absolutely right to pick up on that. He's very clumsy, and that's a big part of his messiness is being clumsy and sort of like bull in a sh- in a china shop. <laughs> and I mean, you know, one thing that's really spoken to me about this book is just that there's something that we all identify with that life is crazy and we make mistakes and we bump into stuff and make messes all the time. And as a mom with a child and working at home right now, there are constant uh uh-ohs and moments when there's either myself or my daughter making an uh uh-oh. And that's something that like one of her first words was uh uh-oh. And Messy Larry came around uh, right around that time. And he's been like this really great person in our lives to talk about uh uh-ohs being okay. And like, it's okay to make a mess or it's totally fine to get messy. That's just such a liberating idea for, I think, parents and kids that messes are just a part of creativity in life. Sure. I think a lot of kids, well, probably every kid can relate to the the whole messiness thing because every kid has been yelled at at some point or reproached in some way about making a mess and you know, dropping food on the floor or whatever it might be, not cleaning up the room. It, it could be a thousand different things. Uh, so every kid is going to be like, yeah, I've been there. I, I know what that feels like. But, you know, the funny thing is, is that neatness is so much a part of our world as adults. Uh, it's something that we care about and we devote a lot of time and effort to it. It's a source of pride. It's it's part of who we are and it's part of how we see each other. And we, in our society, we cast judgment on people who don't abide by the standards that we set for ourselves and others in terms of neatness. But that's part of the adult world. Illustrating and writing children's books is not your main job. This is kind of a project that you've done, you know, I, I imagine in your evening or weekend time, but by day you have a different job, right? Yes. Uh, I'm a, a, a prosecutor, uh, a federal prosecutor by day. And um, I sometimes tell people that I'm an artist who happens to be a lawyer, if that makes any sense. I can relate to Larry because I've been painting since college and I still paint quite a bit. In fact, last weekend I was making stretchers for canvases uh, in my shed. I think art brings color to life. And whatever medium you experience it in, whether it's music or visual arts, film, fashion, whatever, that's something that's going to bring richness to your life and to the lives of a lot of people. And what about what made you decide to focus energy towards a children's book in particular? Why this audience? I had a scrap of paper, which I had written a few lines down on, like verses, and they were lyrical. And every once in a while, like I would happen upon that scrap of paper and I'd pull it out and look at it and maybe add another couple lines to it, make a few changes, stick it back in the file where I had it and uh, kind of forget about it. And that process went on for some years. So I thought, you know, this I bet this would make a, a great story for a, a picture book. Um, I guess it just starts with an idea that you have and you want to see it come to fruition. And you think that um, it would it would benefit people. I certainly don't claim that this is going to add anything uh, to 
the literary world, but I hope that kids will enjoy it and maybe touch on some of the themes. And so that's my small contribution. I think children's books have a lot of power to really stop people in their tracks and think about how to live a more richer life. I know like children's books for me in the past year, there's been days where it's just like so much is happening, emails and meetings. And my daughter being at home will just sometimes insist on me stopping and reading a book. And and until I like stop and really read a book, sometimes I don't slow down. And then when I do, it's just so beautiful. There's so much in children's books that I think adults can benefit from too. So, so yes, uh, that's a really good point. Um, of course, you know, some books are better than others, of course. You, you never know which book a kid's going to latch onto, right? I mean, you know that as a mom. And some of them are just like mind-numbing. I can remember when my kids were small, if they happened to want to read a book that was just, I mean, for lack of a better word, just really dumb, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you read that. If you're the parent, you have to read that 10 times. You you pretty much want to slam your head off the desk. It's just, it's, it's excruciating. <laughs> they come to you and they say, oh, can we read this book? And you're like, oh my God, I don't know if I can handle another one. I lost 2000 brain cells the first time I had to read it. And so I really was hoping to do something that was not like that, the opposite of that, whatever that was, the opposite of that. And so I, I set out to write something that was fun to read, both for parents and for kids and entertaining. So, you know, that's something that I really set out to do. And I think the next book is going to be like that even better. So that that's, yeah, but you're right. Children's books can be a wonderful medium. I, I can tell you that probably my most favorite book to this day is a book by a French author named Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, and it's called The Little Prince. And for all per- intents and purposes, it, it looks like a children's book and reads like a children's book. It's small. It's about 75 pages, and it has little illustrations in it, but there's a lot going on there. There's some really, really beautiful themes in that book, such that a child can be reading it on one level and the adult reading it on another, and both derive a tremendous benefit from that story. Beautiful, beautiful book. Just the themes in there are just absolutely incredible. The whole idea that what's most important in life is not on the surface. I mean, what better thing could you want a kid to learn? That's David J. Perry, artist and children's book author. His illustrated book is called Messy Larry. He's working on a second book called Cameron Gives a Kiss. Now, in my house, we're big fans of Cynthia Ryland. She's written picture books, easy readers, chapter books, novels, you name it. More than 100 books since she first started. What you may not know is that she was raised in West Virginia. While she has a lot of happy memories from her early childhood, she also experienced tough times. She was raised by a single mom who had to leave her young daughter so she could attend nursing school. So for a few years, Cynthia lived with her grandparents in Raleigh County, in the coal fields of southern West Virginia. It was so lovely living there. I mean, um, for one thing, it was just so quiet. The world is such a noisy place these days, and... Uh, just to hear 
you know, the cowbells out in the field and um, just to hear the birds singing in the morning and to be able to be free and be outside all day. And people were quiet. Uh, they were very dignified. They took such good care of their little homes. Their little homes were so nice and neat. And they had beautiful gardens. And they canned all their vegetables. And um, I was very protected. I never felt afraid when I was there. Now, when I've told people I'm going to be interviewing you, because I've been excited, one common thread is When I Was Young in the Mountains, which was your first book. Was that book based on your experience living with your grandparents? Yes. Everything in that book is true. Um, The book was illustrated by an artist named Diane Good, and in her art, uh, she placed the time of the story much earlier, (laughs) and looks to be in the late 1800s, the way the people are dressed, and women are wearing long dresses and so forth. But actually, the time that I lived in Cool Ridge was in the 60s, late 50s, early 60s. The page that fascinates my kids is the image of the children swimming in the pond with the snakes. And I think they find it so fascinating because every other book, you know, people tend to be squeamish or scared of snakes. And this book just depicts people coexisting in that squares with their life. I think they've, they've stared at that page so much. Did you swim with snakes then? Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, in the book, you know, I talk about us draping a long snake across our necks for a photograph. And uh, somebody in the family had a brownie camera and, uh, uh, you know, we did that. I've got one uh, photograph with my mom. I think it was that same snake. We'd never seen one quite that long. She's sitting on the hood of a car, and the snake is, a uh, dead snake is draped across the hood of the car uh, behind her. Um, when the snakes came too close to the house, my grandmother had to go out there and take a hoe and, and kill them to get them out of the yard. But, you know, we were so used to nature. You know, I... I mean, I, I'm more nervous walking in the woods now than I was <laughs> when I was five years old. <laughs> uh, I mean, it speaks to me, too, because, you know, I, my grandparents had farm in Appalachia, you know, near the West Virginia border. And I can remember going into my great aunt, um, into her chicken house to, to collect eggs and finding a black snake curled up in one of the nest boxes that was that gave me a jump, but um, it speaks to me too because it's it just reminds me of my experience as going to my grandparents' house, and I, and I think that's probably true for a lot of Appalachians who read this book. So you were with your you stayed there at your grandparents for several years, and tell me what happened next. Well, um, you know, I guess I should say about the time that I lived with my grandparents those years, um, I was very protected and you know had happy days, but I it was very. Um, I was shattered when my mother would come and visit for a short period of time and then leave again and go back to nursing school. I have a memory of standing in the in the yard and watching the car uh, take her away to the uh, Greyhound bus station and uh, crying so hard and my grandmother leading me back into the house gently and uh, putting me into her bed. Um, covering me up, um, just letting me cry my little eyes out. So the most joyful thing was that, you know, my mother finally finished school and she came back permanently and got a job at a hospital in Beckley and uh, found us a little 
three-room apartment with an indoor bathroom, which I had not experienced before. So that was really high living. And this was in Beaver, West Virginia. And I began my more urban life <laughs> there in Beaver, you know, because they had, a, a, you know, I could walk to the grocery store and they had a little drugstore and a little post office and ride my bike on little paved roads and stuff. And uh, so that was uh, a whole new world for me. And Beaver gave me all kinds of stories, too. When she graduated high school, Cynthia Rowling went to college in Charleston and later on got her master's degree in English at Marshall University in Huntington. That's where she met a community of like-minded people who were into books and literature. But I didn't write. I never wrote creatively all through high school, college. You know, in a strange way, it was as if I wasn't um, worthy of it. Like, that could never be something that I could do. And it wasn't until I finished graduate school and I couldn't find a job and uh, I'm still living in Huntington. So I waitressed for a while and then somebody suggested I try to get a job at the public library. At least I'd be around books. So I applied at the public library, even though I never really used a public library before. And I got a job as a clerk making minimum wage. And um, I was uh, assigned to the children's department to help out there. And that's where I first started reading children's books. And that changed my life. Was there one particular book or was it just the whole sphere of experience in that section? Well, I'd have to say that, first of all, I was just kind of astonished that they were all so beautiful. Yeah, I've never seen picture books before, you know, with the beautiful art and the words. There was one called Oxcart Man by a poet named Donald Hall that really uh, influenced me. The language is just perfect. And then there was a book called The Animal Family by Randall Jarrell, another poet. And it's about a hunter who was all alone and... Uh, no one to love, and and he meets a mermaid, and they make a family with a bear and a lynx and uh, a third animal. I can't remember what now, but the language was so beautiful. And, you know, I had come out of graduate school in English, and I I have to tell you, the writing in those books uh, was uh, just incredibly moving to me, much more than the writing that I had been studying in all my classes. And then was that what inspired you to to pick up the pen and start writing creatively? Yeah. You know, when I was working in the the children's department, I used to just carry home uh, bags full of children's books to read. I didn't have a child at the time, although I was expecting a child I had married. And um, I'd bring home uh, those books, and um, I just, something told me to pick up a pen, you know, pad of paper, and... Uh, you know, one night I sat down and I wrote the line, when I was young in the mountains, grandfather came home in the evening covered with a black dust of coal mine. And I just kept writing and, um, you know, within a, a few minutes I'd written my first picture book, When I Was Young in the Mountains. When I was young in the mountains, grandfather came home in the evening covered with the black dust of a coal mine. Only his lips were clean, and he used them to kiss the top of my head. When I was young in the mountains, grandmother spread the table with hot cornbread, pinto beans, and fried okra. Later, in the middle of the night, 
She walked through the grass with me to the Johnny house and held my hand in the dark. I promised never to eat more than one serving of okra again. When I was young in the mountains, we walked across the cow pasture and through the woods, carrying our towels. The swimming hole was dark and muddy, and we sometimes saw snakes, but we jumped in anyway. On our way home, we stopped at Mr. Crawford's for a mound of white butter. Mr. Crawford and Mrs. Crawford looked alike and always smelled sweet milk. When I was young in the mountains, we pumped pails of water from the well at the bottom of the hill and heated the water to fill round tin tubs for our baths. Afterward, we stood in front of the old black stove, shivering and giggling, while Grandmother heated cocoa on top. When I was young in the mountains, we went to church in the schoolhouse on Sundays and sometimes walked with the congregation through the cow pasture to the dark swimming hole for baptism. My cousin Peter was laid back into the water and his white shirt stuck to him and my grandmother cried. When I was young in the mountains, we listened to frogs sing at dusk and awoke to cowbells outside our windows. Sometimes a black snake came in the yard and my grandmother would threaten it with a hoe. If it did not leave, she used the hoe to kill it. Four of us once draped a very long snake, dead, of course, across our necks for a photograph. When I was young in the mountains, we sat on the porch swing in the evening, and Grandfather sharpened my pencil with his pocket knife. Grandmother sometimes shelled beans and sometimes braided my hair. The dogs lay around us, and the stars sparkled in the sky. A bobwhite whistled in the forest. Bob, Bob, white. When I was young in the mountains, I never wanted to go to the ocean, and I never wanted to go to the desert. I never wanted to go anywhere else in the world, for I was in the mountains, and that was always enough. How did you then write your, your second book? How did you go from the one book to writing dozens of books? <laughs> well, I know for me, when I got the first book accepted, I remember sort of trying to bargain with God and say, if you just let me have one more book accepted, <laughs> I'll be happy. I'll just be happy with two books. <laughs> and so um, anyway, I decided to stay in Appalachia. Uh, for my writing, and so my second book was called Miss Maggie, and it was, again, about a, uh, a woman I knew who lived in a, a log house near the Crawfords uh, in one of those cow pastures, and, uh, you know, she wore the old Appalachian bonnet, and she chewed tobacco, and uh, there was a, a rumor that a black snake lived in the house with her, and um, my grandparents used to take Miss Maggie to the grocery store back and forth, Anyway, uh, I wrote a story about her, and that was my second accepted book. And then I just continued with these Appalachian stories, and my third book was called The Relatives Came. And again, there's a true story about the relatives in Virginia traveling over the mountains to come see us in West Virginia. And so, um, you know, it all just flowed. I, I just have to say, I think it was just my calling. Uh, I think we all find in our lives a time when what we're doing seems right and natural to us, no matter what that is, you know, um, could be many different things, but we just feel like 
we're in the right place, we're doing the right thing. And that's what I felt when I started writing the picture books. You said that your intention was to remain in Appalachia and continue to write. What led you to leave? Well, um, you know, I just couldn't find a job. I had a master's degree in English, but it wasn't a PhD in English, and I wasn't ready to or even able to go to uh, get further education and get a PhD to become a college teacher. And I didn't have an education degree to be a public school teacher because I didn't take education classes in college. Uh, I was intimidated by that whole idea of being a student teacher. And, um, you know, just ended up, as many people do, with degrees in English or philosophy or psychology, <laughs> you know, uh, a very well-educated person who I couldn't get a job. <laughs> so what I ended up doing was going to Ohio, and uh, I was able to get another assistantship, and I got a library degree. And I ended up working in Ohio libraries because uh, when I wanted to come back to West Virginia, back to Huntington, uh, that area, there weren't any jobs available. So I ended up just living in Ohio uh, for many years and, uh, and, and never moved back to West Virginia. Although my family, of course, stayed there and uh, all my life, you know, I'm in my 60s now. All my adult life, I've made a trip to West Virginia at least once a year. And now you live in on the Pacific Northwest, correct? Yeah, uh-huh, I do. I, w- what led you there? Well, um, I don't know. You know, a, a lot of people do this. You know, it's called the midlife crisis. It happens at around late 30s, early 40s, <laughs> when people think, you know, they just got to do something different. And um, I can't really explain to you um, why I felt I needed to come to the Pacific Northwest at that time. But I had I had visited Seattle once, and I was just fascinated by this part of the country and um, that whole Puget Sound region. You know, it's just uh, kind of mysterious and so green. Uh, and I just got it into my head um, when I was close to 40 that uh, I wanted to move out here. And again, you know, I just have to think this was not really my design. It was probably God's design. I just thought it was my idea. And, you know, when we look at our lives and we look at the choices we made, I often think of all the mistakes I've made and the wrong turns I took and the people I shouldn't have been with and people I should have been with that I wasn't, you know, things like that. And you look back and you think, oh, I wish I could change this or that. And uh, But you have to follow the thread. You know, you have to say, well, where did that mistake you think you were making, where did that take you? And, you know, invariably, you know, when I look at my threads, it took me someplace good. And so when I got out here to the Pacific Northwest, you know, many times uh, I would think, I wish, you know, maybe I should go back or here I am out here. I don't know how to get back. But you know, I had a little uh, a little granddaughter born uh, just three years ago, and I tell myself, you know, you know that long thread you were following, you know, it led to her. She wouldn't have been made had I not come out here. And uh, so I have to think that, you know, when we're making our choices, uh, we're 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 being guided, we're being pulled towards something that we don't even understand. Cynthia Ryland, thank you so much for your time. It's been an honor and a delight. Thank you, Mason. I always love talking about where I grew up and 
talking about books, and um, I just wish you and and everybody out there um, happy days ahead, many joyous, wonderful moments in 2021. Cynthia Ryland's books have won Caldecott and Newberry Awards. She's published so many amazing children's books, you probably have at least one on your bookshelf. Our next guest may be another familiar name. Bill Lepp is a storyteller who's won the West Virginia Liars Contest five times. Here he is reading from his children's book, The Princess and the Pickup Truck. Listen up, y'all. Once there was a prince. He was a mountain prince. He lived on a farm, on a grange, which is just an old word for farm, and I like to use it because then I can say he lived on a grange on a mountain range. And this particular prince wanted to marry a princess. But he didn't want to marry any princess. He wanted to marry a real mountain princess. The only trouble was there weren't any mountain princesses in the general vicinity. So he said to his mama, he lives with his mama, I think that explains some things, he said to his mama, Mama, I want to marry me a real mountain princess, but there ain't any princesses around here. So he set out, and he hiked the Himalayas, he cruised the Caucasus, he ascended the Alps and the Appalachians, he went to Glass Mountain to see if there was anybody with just one shoe, he went to the Sierras to see if there were any ladies in tiaras, and he met a lot of people who said they were princesses, but he wasn't sure they were real princesses, because let's face it, Princess costumes just aren't that expensive. So he went home and he said to his mama, he said, Mama, I couldn't find me any real mountain princesses. He said, I met a couple ladies who I think they were frauds. He said, now I kissed some of those frauds to see if they would turn into princesses. And his mama said, don't kiss frauds, you'll get warts. And that night there was a terrible storm. There was rain and wind and snow and thunder and lightning, a hurricane, a tidal wave, an earthquake. And in the midst of all of that, there was a knock on the door. And the prince went, and he opened the door. And because this is a story, there, on the stoop, stood three beautiful, prim, prime princesses. And he was so excited, until they said, trick or treat. And he was like, "Oh shucks. But the next morning was a beautiful day. And the prince was out in the field doing some work, and he saw a woman coming down the road. Now, she had on a calico dress, her hair was a mess, and she was wearing hiking boots. But she said, howdy, I'm a real mountain princess. Now, he didn't know if she was a real mountain princess or not, because he didn't know if real princesses walked around in hiking boots, calico dresses with their hair in a mess. But she did have a sash that said, mountain princess. So he thought, maybe. And he took her home, and he introduced her to his mama. He said, mama, this here lady says she's a real mountain princess. Well, the mama wasn't sure either, so she took the son to the side and she said, we're just going to have to test her and find out. I want you to take 20 mattresses and pile them up on the back of your pickup truck. And when it comes time for bed, we'll have her sleep on those mattresses. And if she don't notice she's sleeping on a pickup truck, we'll know she's a real mountain princess. And the prince said, okay, mama, I know we're brainstorming, so no bad ideas, but just a couple of things. First of all, we ain't got 20 mattresses. We got three mattresses, an air mattress, and one of them blow-up raft things. And the mama said, use what you got. And then the prince said, and mama, how is she not going to notice the pickup truck? He said, I bought that pickup truck specifically so princesses would notice me. And the mama said, how's that working out for you? And she thought about it for a minute, and she said, dust ruffle. 
So they put a big sheet around a pickup truck. And that night, when it came time for bed, the prince said, Well, I guess it's time for bed. Princess, let me show you where you'll be sleeping. He said, It's out the front door, across the driveway, up this ladder, on top of this pile of mattresses. Nothing weird about that. So she climbed up, and she went to sleep. And when the princess was sound asleep, the mama gave the keys to the truck to the son, and she said, Now, I want you to get in the truck, and I want you to drive. I want you to drive uphill. I want you to drive downhill. I want you to go on curvy roads. I want you to go on bumpy roads. And if she don't notice she's sleeping on a pickup truck, we'll know she's a real mountain princess. And the son said, okay, mama, just one problem with that. If I go down a bumpy road, she's going to fly off those mattresses and she's going to splat. And I don't want to marry a roadkill princess. And the mama thought about it for a second and she said, clamp it, which is the best Beverly Hillbillies joke you're going to get all week. And she took a big ribbon, and she tied the princess to the top of the mattresses. And the prince got in the truck, and he drove uphill, and he drove downhill, and he went on curvy roads, and he went on bumpy roads. And then he put it in four-wheel drive so that he could ford a stream. He had to dodge a ram. He drove across the tundra. After a while, he pulled over to coma his hair. And when the princess didn't wake up and he started to get tired, he headed home because drowsy driving is dangerous driving. And when he got home, the princess was still snoring in a very unprincess-like manner. And he went in, and he went to bed. And in the morning, he and his mama were eating breakfast. And the princess walked in, and she said, Morning, how'd y'all sleep? And they said, We slept great, which was a lie, because they didn't have any mattresses. But they said, How'd you sleep? And she said, Best night of sleep I ever had in my life. Dreamt the whole night long that I was riding on a bucking bronco. And then they knew that she was a real mountain princess. And the prince and the princess got married, and they lived happily ever after. Sometimes in two-wheel drive, sometimes in four-wheel drive, but they always managed to thrive. The end. And yes, The Princess and the Pickup Truck is based on the fairy tale The Princess and the Pea. Here's Bill up again, telling us a little of the backstory. The idea came from I was riding with my daughter. She was probably about 14 at the time. And there was a truck in front of us that just had a whole bunch of mattresses thrown in the back. And I said to her, do you think you can sleep on that? And she's the funniest person in our family and has wonderful teen sarcasm, but she uses it for powers of good. And she said, of course I could sleep on that, Daddy. I'm a princess. And then once I had it down, I you know, th- this was one that definitely I thought would translate into a children's book. So uh, I-, I went about making that happen. One of my favorite things about children's books is the rhythms you hear when you read them out loud. It's awesome to hear folks like Bill Epp and Cynthia Ryland tell their stories in their own voices. Our final guest writes most of her stories as performances. Lynn Ford is a professional storyteller who grew up in Appalachian, Pennsylvania, and she spent many childhood summers in East Liverpool, Ohio. Many of Ford's stories are adapted from folktales she heard as a child. She identifies as Afro-Latin, a term that combines African-American 
and Appalachian identity. Many of the stories of the history of African Americans was not put into history books. I didn't learn even a portion of that until I found some old books that an auntie had, and she gave them to me because she said I was being raised like a hothouse rose, that we weren't getting all the information. So I think it starts with family, sharing the stories from your own family, and that makes a connection to history. And also sharing stories is communication, which helps us to know one another better. And we all need that these days, getting acquainted with one another. So definitely storytelling is at the foundation of a better world. Here's Lynn Ford telling one of her stories, The Old Woman and Death, at the Timpanoka Storytelling Institute in Utah in 2016. In my family, because of its diversity and the many voices that share stories, we tend to have a unique spin on just about anything, including life and death. Once there was an old woman who was sweeping the floor in her house, and as she swept, she sang a song to help her to pass the time, make the work go more easily and more quickly. Move your hands a bit, it'll help keep you awake for the next teller. (laughs) Sweep that floor and help that old woman sing her song. She sang, nee, 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 Missed a spot. And then suddenly there was a knock at the door. And the old woman set her broom beside the door and opened up the door. And there stood a man, tall, made of nothing but bone. He held his hand out to her and he said, Old woman, I am death. And it is time for you to go. And the old woman looked up at him and said, Not yet. I ain't finished sweeping this floor yet, so you're going to have to wait. Death said, But old woman, it is time for you to go. It ain't time yet. I told you I ain't finished sweeping this floor. In fact, if you want me to go anywhere, you come on in here and help me finish sweeping. (laughs) Death said, old woman, I do not sweep. She said, well, if you want me to go anywhere, you're going to come in here and help me finish this work. Now get in here and help me sweep this floor. (laughs) Now, no one had ever spoken to death like that before, so he walked on in. And the old woman gave him her spare broom, and they began to sweep the floor together. And the old woman sang the song she sang to help make the work go more quickly and easily. You can help her. Stop, 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 death. You ain't singing. Sing, it'll make the, the, the work get done quicker. Just sing. Death said, old woman, I do not sing. Well, you're going to sing today. Sing! (laughs) No one had ever talked to death like that before. He was a bit afraid of this old woman. (laughs) 
So death began to sing. Oh, never mind, honey, don't sing no more. But after a while, the floor was swept clean and the brooms were placed beside the door and death held out his long bony fingers toward that old woman and said, old woman, it is time for you to go. Not yet. I ain't finished my cooking. Come on in the kitchen and help me finish. Cook. Old woman, I do not cook. Well, I ain't done with the cooking yet, and you're here. I need some extra hands, even if they bony ones. Come on in here and help me finish this cooking. (laughs) So Death walked into the kitchen with the old woman, and she gave him a spoon, and he began to stir something that smelled delicious in a big pot. And when he had finished stirring, he helped the old woman to cut up fruits and vegetables and place them on long platters. He went into the other room and helped her to spread the tablecloths, bring in the platters, set down napkins, knives, forks, and spoons, plates, bowls, and glasses. And when the tables were set and the food was all done, death held out his hand and said, Old woman, it is time for you to go. Not yet. I got to get into my party dress because company will be here soon and I need for somebody to stand at the door and greet folks as they come in. (laughs) So you stand at the door and if anybody knocks, you open up the door, you greet them, you welcome them, you tell them, come on in. Old woman, I do not do what I tell you to do. Death walked to the door. And the old woman went into her bedroom and closed the door. Death stood at the door until he heard someone knock. And then death slowly opened the door. There stood a young woman and a young man. And they looked up at the one standing at the door. Death said, Greetings. Welcome. Do come in. The young woman asked the young man, Do you think we should go in? The young man said, Yes, it's grandma's house. And I think he's smiling. Smiling? How can you tell? (laughs) But Death stood aside and welcomed them in, and they both walked into the house. Then Death closed the door, and each time there was a... (coughs) At the door, Death opened the door and greeted others, welcomed them, told them to come in. And soon the house was filled with people, and a band had set up in one corner of that big room, and the music had begun to play. People were carrying on conversations, laughing, talking. Some of them were singing to the sounds of the band. A few of them were already eating when grandmother opened up her bedroom door. There she stood in her party dress and her dancing shoes, polished and shiny. And as she walked in and talked with others and laughed and ate and danced, death stood in one corner because he didn't know what else to do. 
And while he stood there, a little boy walked over to him with a plate of food. And the little boy looked at him and said, Mr. Bony Man, you too skinny. Here, eat this. Death said, child, go away. I have no need for food. Eat this. Go away, child. I don't need food. Eat this. Eat it. Eat it. Eat it. Eat it. Well, grandmother walked over to death and said, look what you just did. You made one of my great grandbabies cry. Shame on you. If this boy wants you to eat something, you better open your mouth and eat it. So death opened his bony jaw. And the little boy stood on tippy toes and shoved the food into death's mouth. It bounced down his neck bones, through his rib cage, dropped through his pelvic bones, bounced off his knees, and fell to the floor. (laughs) And the little boy looked at the food on the floor. He went and got another plate of food. (laughs) Here, Mr. Bony Man, eat this. And he shoved the food into death's mouth. And once again, it bounced down his neck bones, through his rib cage, dropped through his pelvic bones, bounced off his knees and landed on the floor. And other children saw this. They began to fill small plates with food, run over to death, and shove food into death's mouth. And after a while, there was a pile of food on the floor. And that first little boy walked over to death and said, Mr. Bony Man, here's some juice. Drink it. Well, death took the glass and poured it down his bones. And it stuck to the neck bones and the rib cage bones and the pelvic bones. But it became a puddle with the food on the floor. And more juice was brought by more of the children. And they were giggling and laughing as death became very, very sticky. And his feet began to stick to the food and the juice on the floor. Well, that noise made the children laugh. And Death tried to get his feet to move away from that messy puddle. And when he did, his knee bones knocked together. Well, this began to make a rhythm, and the children started to dance. They were having a good time. And when the band heard the rhythm and saw the children dancing, they picked up the rhythm, and they played to the rhythm of death's bony kneecaps and sticky feet. And everyone began to dance with death. Everyone was having a wonderful time. And that old woman walked toward death, held out her arms, and began to dance around with death. And after a while, the party was over. The band left. Everyone left. And there were only two standing in that house. The old woman and death. The old woman said, I want to thank you for letting me have my birthday party. This was my 99th birthday. Since it's over... 
I guess it's time for me to go. And she held her hand out to death. And death said, no, old woman, this was too much fun. (laughs) We have to do this again. I'll see you next year. And death returned for the old woman's hundredth birthday and the next birthday and the next birthday and the next birthday until the old woman felt tired and felt that it was time to go. Death held out his hand and the old woman took it and she was not afraid. Nor were her children, or her children's children, or her children's children's children, or anyone in that small community in the hills, for they had all danced with death. That's Lynn Ford telling her story, The Old Woman and Death in front of a live audience at Utah's Timpanogos Storytelling Institute back in 2016. She currently lives in Columbus, Ohio. With restrictions and concerns about safety during the pandemic, like many performers, Lynn scaled back or stopped telling stories in front of live audiences for many months. But according to her website, she's easing back into things. The 2022 National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee, recently announced that Lynn will be part of its lineup. Coincidentally, West Virginia's Bill Lepp is also scheduled to return to the festival. The 2022 National Storytelling Festival is set to take place October 7th through the 9th in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Today, we've heard from several children's storytellers. They've all talked about the power storytelling has for people generally, whether they're children or grown-ups. Like for me, as a parent, reading children's books makes me think more about my children's inner lives, but also how I tell stories. I'm Mason Adams. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Dinosaur Burps, Nathan L., and Marisa Anderson. Bill Lynch is our producer. Our associate producer is Alex Runyon. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. Look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.